Hello on VHF and on Longwave. This is the Sitcom Club with myself, Hey Ho Moon Cat and Co, and yourself. Hello. Why are we here? Well, you're Ocho. Let's 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 just put that on the, the table straight away. What are we doing here? We had previously promised. Oh, we're back to another one of our. We announce something and then we don't follow through on it. Apologies if you're expecting nightingales, and why wouldn't you be? Because that's what we said. What we're going to be talking about this week. Alas, time got the better of us. We didn't all have time to see the requisite number of episodes in order for us to be able to speak about it at any length. So we put nightingales on hold for a little while. But it's very, very well worthwhile checking out. You'll find them all uh, on YouTube anyway. You'll find all the different episodes on there. It's a very, very good show. Uh, it's well worth checking out if you've not seen it before. But we will come back to that in a future edition. So, Ocho and I are here with another delving into the mailbag. And we've got some nice responses. And we're going to be addressing those responses here and now. And the first of those responses actually came from Birdie. And she has proposed... Would you say not not a spin off of Comeback Mrs. Noah, but more a reimagining? Re-tooling. Yeah, where I was going to say Mrs. Slocum, but it's not Mrs. Slocum, of course. But Molly Sugden, she is cast in the role as what in modern terminology you would call a cougar. Now, the thing is that we did discuss in that episode the other week, we did discuss that rather curious closing theme music where Ian Lavender is, is singing some sort of romantic sonnet to Mrs. Noah. So you could already say that there is a bit of that kind of thing going on there. basic problem with that is that it's completely separated from the way that those two interact with each other in the show itself. But nevertheless, if you want... Yeah, there's your problem. Well... And then he's saying Mrs. Noah as a cougar. Look at the guys. Even Ian Lavender is a grey-haired, sensible, middle-aged man. You'd have to recast all the guys as well. Can I just point something out? Well, first of all, the first thing to point out, um, purely as an observation, is that Ian Lavender was somewhat grey ahead of his time. So he was, you know, a good bit younger. That's his problem. If he wants to look like innocent young prey of Gertrude Noah, (laughs) Grecian 2000 or GTFO... (laughs) Yeah, you'd you'd have to recast the men if you want to go with that concept. Okay, well, I've already proposed Keith Chegwin. I mean, he's young enough, isn't he? At the time, yes. Okay, Keith Chegwin. So what, is he playing the Ian Lavender part? Yes. Because okay. remember the Keith Chegwin, and I'm not... I hope this isn't libelous, because I think he actually told the story himself. He did actually fib on his CV when he got the job at Swap Shop and claimed to have been in the show business industry for about 14 years by that point, which clearly wasn't true. So he could have perhaps... And he claimed not to have been an Egghead's robot. That's not true, but I wouldn't have blamed him if he'd (laughs) omitted that. I wouldn't blame him if he'd put right at the bottom, I am not the Keith Chegwin who was in Egghead's robot, that was somebody else. Right, you've got in Children's Film Foundation speak, you've got the children and the adults. So remind me, who are the adults in I A K or whatever it's called? I'm going to guess Julian Orchard for one. I think he'll be in there. Norman Bird. We'll pop him in there somewhere. The answers may shock you. Okay, I'm, I'm ready for it. Hit me with it. Roy Kinnear. Excellent. As the Parky. And as Egghead's parents, Richard Wattis. Hey. And Patricia Routledge. Ah, smashing. But she leaves that one off her CV as well. <laughs> what year is this? 1970. Yeah, okay. Well, are we going to review that for a future sitcom club, even though it isn't a sitcom and also it's not for television? I have it on DVD. You haven't, have you? 
I do, I do. Oh, wow. I can see some uh, <laughs> Christmas viewing coming up here. <sighs> Lovely. Was this everyone at Christmas? We need to check. Well, Children's Film Foundation films were uh, a Friday thing, as I recall. Well, I always associate them with Friday afternoons in the summer when Children's Punishment. BBC was in that funny... Cause, you know, Children's ch- BBC saw what you did. <laughs> said, right, <laughs> not going to be any fun today. We're going to make you watch this film and all the kids... But back in the days when something that was 10 years old looked really alien. Of course. Cause look- now, I mean, people can... Oh, no, you're just getting old. It's like, no, seriously, look at something from 2003. Their clothes are the same as our clothes. Yes, the 70s I are I can't think of universe. an item of clothing from 2003 that just look, what the hell is this thing? The only... I mean, we've, we've talked about this before, but the only distinguishing feature, if you were to watch, say, an episode of Let's say my family from 2003. The only distinguishing features about it would be the way that it appears, and as much as it's going to be standard definition rather than HD, and it's probably going to have that horrible uh, film look applied to it, even though it's a, a studio and set sitcom. Their phones will be larger. Phones will be larger, and they'll. Things like, for example, the internet will be spoken as if it was in capital letters and they'll have to sit in front of a pc to go on the internet and things like that by and large no it won't be the slightest bit different you don't even have the difference in in the size of the glasses that you do like people's spectacles in the early 90s and things like that but no the 70s they're in the universe yeah i mean i I used to watch children's film foundation circa 87 that looked like an old bloody planet i mean it really did didn't it i mean the um, saturday afternoons we used to get in STV, anyway, STV area, we used to get repeats of Here Come the Double Deckers. That didn't look like anything. That didn't look like anything I recognised. I mean, I recognised Melvin Hayes, but apart from that, I didn't recognise any of the outfits. Didn't recognise what these funny big red double-decker buses were. We didn't have them <laughs> in our region either at that time. So, yeah, different universe, but hey, that's what keeps it all trendy. And of course there's George Roper. He's a pervert, isn't he? He gets up to a few things. He was in the 70s. Um, we'll come to him later. Oh yeah, we always come to him. Spats! Now listen, the first... Callan! Okay, Dick well, Turpin! Now, hang on. <laughs> Enemy at the door. We're not at that episode yet. We've, Budgie! We've got to, we're going to do all of them in a special... Sergeant Court. We're going to do Juliet a special Bravo. non-sitcom club. And yes, I am including Spats in the non-sitcom category. <laughs> we're going to do all of them in one You go. know, it did occur to me earlier... That maybe we should do Gateway Club. Gateway Club? Episodes of dramas that are very funny. Are deliberately funny. Okay. I woke up the other day thinking about an episode of Budgie that wouldn't take a great deal of work to be turned into an episode of Only Fools and Horses. There are light-hearted episodes of The Sweeney. I can't think of any for the professionals, but there are a couple of play-hearted episodes of the Sweeney. Obviously, the one that everybody refers to is the penultimate one. Not the last one, is often claimed. The penultimate one with Morgan Wise. But a little bit earlier, you've got two separate episodes with Patrick Moore and George Layton as the dastardly duo. And they're quite light in their tone. They're not completely played for comedic effect. They've still got a fair amount of drama in them. But yeah, they're certainly a good bit lighter than the average episode. Funnily enough, the Sweeney actually... It would have been great if after that penultimate episode and it had finished, Thames had gone, you know what, I think there's another series in this with a different comedy guest star every week. Can we Can we do that? John? Dennis? <laughs> Mike and Bernie is the villains this week. 
they, were they still a double act in the late seventies? Yes, until seventy eight. So yes, it could okay. have been. Yep. The Grumbleweeds is a gang. Drama series that had sitcom spin-offs. And I'm gonna nab the obvious one, pardon the expression. Over to you. The Brothers McGregor. Oh, good one, good one. They're the only television spin-offs from Coronation Street. And they're both sitcoms, which says a lot about Coronation Street. Was there not supposed which is a good thing. Was there not a proposed sitcom spin-off involving Ken Morley? Which I don't think made it to air. That wouldn't surprise me. Has there been anything in relation to EastEnders or Emmerdale? Is there a little big too? No, not as far as I'm aware, but a sitcom with Amos Brearley. I would buy that on DVD. As would we all. <laughs> and so I've been looking for something on YouTube and it seems to have been taken down, no. which is, I think it's an Asda commercial. And it's supposed to be, hey, remember 1997? <laughs> They're trying to sort of make it look different. <laughs> look, and there so, was the Spice uh, the, Girls. The, the, yeah, well, they've basically slightly drained the colour and everybody's dressed up like it's 1987. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to do. Hey, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, everything was quite similar. Whereas 1997, you want to do, hey, remember 1981? Big hair. Oh, well, I don't... Because 1981 was still the 70s in a lot of parts of... Well, 1997 was still the 70s in certain parts of Scotland. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I, did, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in Grampian And in 1981, region. making an advert portraying 1965... Just take the colour out. There you go. Yeah. Take the colour out. And everybody's got frosted lips. And if it's 1965 and you want to portray 1950, flat caps, moustaches, suits. Let's keep going back. 1935... Going up that big hill in the Hovis advert, or is that more 1920s? Mm-hmm. 1920 rickets. What? That was all the rage, was it, in the 1920s? <laughs> well, actually, that's interesting thing. is a film from, I think it's 1928 or 29, called Shooting Stars. And it's a film about films, and it's set in 1914, I think, round about then. And it's weird looking. People think of silent films as as like almost a genre rather than a medium. If you say, I'll make it look like a silent film. Like that's one thing you can do. Because silent films is about 30 years. So this is a film from 1928. Going, remember those jolly, unsophisticated, rubbishy <laughs> films from 1914, everybody? Pff, how did we ever sit through those? And the thing is that when... You see portrayals of silent films. For some reason, in the writer's mind, is people walking quickly. <laughs> well, there is a reason for that. Of course, if you ever see something where somebody's watching a silent film at the time and everybody's walking quickly, yes, they've really, <laughs> they've really failed. No, I mean seriously. If somebody's watching a, a nineteen twenty film in nineteen twenty and it's got that jerky movement, wrong, wrong. And that's where Flickers with Bob Hoskins really fell over. It didn't. didn't. They didn't do it like that. But have you ever seen Flickers? Love it, yeah. I can't wait for the network to get round to pictures, the follow-up. And what about Hollywood? Of course that doesn't fit in the, because that's, yeah, well, that's, that's a documentary. That, that's unlikely to see DVD. It, it was released on DVD for about a week, but the clearances for the clips is going to be prohibitively expensive. Even though I imagine that now 90% of them are owned by Ted Turner. Well, he does own a lot of stuff these days, doesn't he? It's probably that vital last 10%. We didn't answer Birdie's question, did we, really? 
Oh, so was that our answer? Yes, but you'd have to recast all the men. Yes, you would. Yeah, well, our question specifically was, I imagine that if Molly had dramatically lost weight and had some Botox, it would have been very different, Mrs. Noah as Cougar. And you replied, followed by, that's my toy boy. That's my toy boy. That's my toy boy. Da, 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 da. Was there ever a sitcom about toy boys? Was there ever, you know, a gender-switched May to December? May to December doesn't really work. For some reason, because I've got this idea that there was something involving Felicity Kendall, and I may be wrong, and I'm going to have to look at something. See, I think it's Penelope Keith, but that could have been a dream. I did once dream about watching a sitcom with Penelope Keith, where she had, she divorced her husband and taken up with a toy boy, and her mother-in-law was played by Jean Bort. But that... <laughs> <laughs> this isn't ringing any bells, no. It's sufficiently vivid enough that it's like, is, is there anything <laughs> in reality... Or have I completely dreamed that sitcom? But May to December doesn't quite work. And I'll tell you for why. How how much younger than him is the, is the girl supposed to be? The she's, woman? This is not, not supposed to be about sort of 10, 15 years, something like that. Something in that region. She's not young enough in her ways. She becomes sportier after she regenerates into Leslie Dunlop. It's like an informed attribute. Oh, big age gap, big age gap. But they both have fairly similar interests. She's not completely consumed in the youth culture of her time. I'm not saying it's a bad sitcom, but it's just very interesting that they have this concept of the age gap sitcom and then just kind of go, yeah, there you go, job done. I'm just looking at a couple of details online just now. She doesn't go out to clubs. She goes where he goes. They're both like musicals. That's the way they, they bond. Well, it's part of the upheaval so to speak of the ongoing story is it not the way that other people react rather than yeah but it just they themselves like, oh made somebody bald there you go that's a turn up for the books <laughs> now we need to find a sitcom and of course the interesting thing is is that that was anton rogers real <laughs> i mean i mean his wife was significantly and uh, not that he married somebody bald because <laughs> I mean, he might have proposed to Brian Glover, but that's... <laughs> I'm just looking at a couple of Felicity Kendall sitcoms. I haven't really got anywhere to take this idea. It was just popped into my head going, eh, they don't really take it the distance. There's got, there's got, there's no, got my, to be something. In my there. mind, I'm sure there would have been one after... Just around about the point where Toy Boy becomes a completely passe phrase and not something anybody uses anymore. That's around about the point when the sitcom would come out. Nothing is springing to mind right now, and I'll kick myself as soon as we finish recording. Then I'm sure something will will pop up. Maybe we'll do it as a, a quick insertion uh, in the the final edit. But uh, if we don't, then please let us know at the Sitcom Club on Twitter, because it's got to be. I know nowadays so I think there was an American series called Cougar Town, but in terms of yeah, that'd be a dramedy. One, yeah, exactly. So in terms of straightforward sitcoms, nothing is springing to mind straight away. Bound to be something out there though. Lapscat has tweeted, which were those groundbreaking sitcoms which first broke the taboo of featuring four-letter words? For example, Game On and... <laughs> Trippers Day. <laughs> I'll come to that. Uh, for example, Game On and The New Statesman. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's big or clever. With me, a simple flipping egg or limmy goes a long way. So yeah, I, I agree with you, Lapscat, for reasons that I will expand on in a moment when I come to the first of those shows that you mentioned. But yeah, obviously, we've got to start with Trippers Day. The C word at 8pm on a Monday night? Outrageous. Didn't happen. Listen, Didn't happen. I heard it, and I've sent you the audio 
So what more should yeah, I say? Yeah, I heard something different. <laughs> so we need to explain this for listeners, don't we? Yes. It's the last episode of Trippers Day, and there is a bomb scare in the supermarket, and the chap who's come in to sort of Trippers tax affairs, he is an ex-army chap, and he's helping to dispose what they think is this, this live item. And in the process, Tripper tells him that he was a military policeman. And this chap blows his top, says he couldn't stand them, the role was conceited, as I thought he said. See what? And you listen to this, and actually turned out that the word was fugs. <laughs> I don't want to immediately get off topic here, because I've got some notes in front of me. I've been doing a little bit of research about this today, because nothing was actually springing to mind straight away. We all know the obvious ones. We all know about Kenneth Tynan and the Sex Pistols and so on. But they're all talk shows, chat shows, live situations, not scripted shows. And straight away, I was not thinking of any obvious examples. I wasn't thinking of, oh, there's that famous one there, uh, the time that Alf Garnet let rip on Christmas night with the stars or anything like that. (laughs) That doesn't make me think of swearing. (laughs) I mean, it would be vulgar. Yes. I'll give you that. (laughs) Nothing else than the, the slow pan in him reading the paper or snoozing in his chair with a paper hat, a hat on his head. <laughs> well, that's how that's how they should have come back to Coronation Street following the Queen in 1991 with, with Alf sat in the chair. Sketch end. <laughs> well, that's a topic for another day. People blowing off <laughs> sitcoms and other light entertainment venues. Before we come on to specific examples... I would just like to touch on the modern sensibilities. Are we, as a nation of viewers, are we more sensitive now than we were perhaps 20-odd years ago? Now, the reason I ask that is because just the other day, for example, Ocho, I sent you a message to say Only Fools and Horses was on gold. Huge edit. Bang, bang. I mean, you could you could tell straight away something, something's gone on there. You know, there's a character who was stood there and now we sat down. Something to that effect. And I looked up the original version and it was the word bastard that had been cut. The thing is that it wasn't being thrown out, directed to the person themselves. It was, we're talking about Roy Slater, Jim Broadbent's character, the, the bent copper, that appears three times in the course of the various series. And Dell says to Rodney that Slater's a bastard. And then Slater's colleague from the force repeats it. It's almost just to emphasise everybody dislikes Slater. Slater is a nasty piece of work. And even his colleagues, let alone his opponents, will say this about him. So there was a point to it being there. It wasn't just for its own sake. And yet that had to get removed for some reason. I've seen episodes of Porridge where it's not been possible to make that kind of edit because it's been the punchline, sometimes a punchline to an entire episode, where it gets pleeped. And I don't know, it just... And yet the other day, Carry On Dick, Channel 4, half past 12, in the day, Kenneth Connor says, oh, I'm a silly old constable. That got loud through, no problem. I'm, I'm puzzled. I'm puzzled as to why... And I think this is specifically to do with gold themselves because they seem to be the ones at the forefront of all this are words like that really going to cause gratuitous offence particularly in the audience for those shows anyway I mean are those shows uh, is Under the Frozen Horses particularly popular with the under 10s when it goes out at 2 o'clock in the afternoon I wouldn't necessarily have thought so 
there, then I think it's not a matter of what are the sensibilities now, the sensibilities within certain companies, where I can see gold might have a if-in-doubt-leave-it-out sensibility. Also, I could be wrong, but I think everybody's chippier now. Yes, I yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think part of it is there's just so much more commentary in the world, even down to social media, which is turning everybody into columnists. Yes, exactly. And I, I adore Twitter. I've been on Twitter now for about three years, and I wouldn't want to come off it. I've, I'm, I'm bored with things like Facebook and so on, but I really adore Twitter. I really enjoy having conversations with people. I wondered why you hadn't people. liked any of my music posts on Facebook. <laughs> no, 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 I did see them all, I just didn't like any of the music. Ah, well. But no, Twitter, yeah, I really adore Twitter. I didn't post any Northern Soul. If you do. You don't even like doing the banana split by the banana split. I didn't see that one. I sent it to you, I said, you hit Northern Soul. Do you even hit this? And you went, rubbish. I don't remember any of this. Yeah. Did you? It's written by Barry White. Barry White didn't associate himself Barry with... Barry White wrote a song for Barry White Splits. did not associate himself with Northern Soul, for goodness sake. Barry White he is did a when he was writing for the Banana Splits. Have you heard any of the Love Unlimited Orchestra? I used to go to... Wonderful, uh, wonderful. Get some of their no, stuff. No, I used honestly. to go to a, a shop which a lot of DJs used to go to. So they used to have some really good, out-of-the-way releases. And I came in... We just got this bootleg of the Banana Splits. This, this is not an official re-release. Somebody had pressed up a vinyl reissue of the Banana Splits album. And he said, you should listen to this. There's some, there's some pretty serious Northern Soul on here. <laughs> there was also, I think it was possibly semi-official, of a bunch of stuff from uh, Play School and Play Away. Well, yeah, okay. If just it's got, for the breakbeats on it. If it's got associations with, with retro TV, of course I'll enjoy it, but... For people who don't know, I can't abide Northern Stone. Can't stand it. I'm a favourite radio station of all, Solar Radio. I was delighted to read the other day that the two hours of Northern Soul they have now goes out Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. Fantastic! I'm never going to be awake when they're playing it. Brilliant. So anyway, yes, I agree with you that Twitter quite often can have that echo chamber type of feel to it. And it's like, what are we getting outraged about today? Yeah, and it's it's not it's just you know status updates that are not people talking to their friends. They're columns. Also, a side effect of this is one: people getting outraged, people getting pre-outraged at the outrage that hasn't been expressed yet. Now, without taking sides, people who complain about political correctness are worse on that front for getting pre-offended at the fence. But it's not just a, a left-right problem. But even down to having a look one day, no names, no pack drill, a website that was talking about old TV. And they were talking about um, the dustbin men, the pilot. And before he even gets to dealing with what happens in this play, before you go any further, this is only for intelligent people who know the difference between comedy and real life. Just start shaking its fist at you. It's this imaginary PC brigade that is going to demand that this post be removed. One thing I would say back to that, though, is I think you're right that it is not straightforward left versus right as far as the political spectrum is concerned. It's a massive lack of nuance. and What I have noticed recently, for some reason, I don't know why myself sitting here in central Scotland, but I've got a particular interest in American politics. And I have noticed on Twitter over the last year or so that 
a lot of what seems to be today's headline storm on Twitter comes from the two separate communities, left and right. It's like, for example, if somebody... Say, say for today, for example, Alec Baldwin got into some trouble for something that he said, and he's on the left in the American political spectrum, and he hosts a show on MSNBC and so on. And all the argument today on Twitter has been about people on the right saying, look at that disgusting Baldwin, and look at what he said, and also sort of throwing over the hand grenade to say yourselves on the left, you're not making much noise about this, are you? And then, of course, the next day it could be something like a couple of days ago, something that Sarah Palin said. And, of course, then it's people on the left all saying, oh, that's disgusting, and you people on the right, you know, why are you not saying anything about this? It's almost like two tribes who are deliberately looking for things to be offended about, and then when the same thing happens in their camp, then, of course, then it's all closed ranks. We don't discuss this, because this is, you know, you're just playing into the the others and we're not going for a golden mean fallacy we're not saying maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle is maybe the truth is not blowing up or looking for an excuse for blowing up but people like it too much people enjoy being angry and upset i think it's because one of the things is most people like to think that they're the central character You, you meet somebody and you can tell this person thinks that they are much much cleverer than i am and thinks that they're hiding it well but evidence of your own superiority is hard to come by. What most of these scum do is, well, I haven't got any evidence of any great things I've done, so I just have to find evidence that you, the person I'm talking to, are inferior. Yes. Yeah. Much easier to forge evidence of somebody's inferiority because just every time they say something, oh, pfft, who cares? Or, of course, just put the worst complexion on something. It's... Sometimes I might have a conversation and in the back of my mind a little alarm will go off which is this this is what some idiot is going to react to P- prepare your defense now and one thing I was thinking about is how nice looking looking through these old radio times is that we've acquired the christmas editions just how nice it is when the ordinary rules of scheduling break and everything changes. That's the one of the great things about Christmas. Not just that they're showing Christmas specials. It's just nice. You turn on your TV. It's a w- maybe not quite so much these days, but just that thing of it's a week night and it's seven o'clock. This show should be on, but it's not. It's even if it's the twenty seventh. Hooray! And I was thinking about that, and in the back of my mind, the alarm went off, prepare defence. So somebody, yeah, well, you can't expect TV to be like that all the time. Then it wouldn't be special. <laughs> because that would be somebody sort of saying, oh, well, obviously, you're going to argue the stupidest point you could possibly argue, and I'd better get in there and put you down for something you haven't said. And all of these people now have the internet, and they post way more than all the people who have bits of information. I know it, I'm kind of committing the same sin myself because I'm pointing out the stupidity of others. But this is why we can't have nice things. I, I sort of I look at things in a similar light to yourself, with with a slight adjustment when you're talking about people sort of trying to make up for some sort of void by looking for the mistakes of others and then you know highlighting them. My reaction. And I've been more and more like this over the last few years. My reaction is always the same now. It's to the person who's complaining, I think, why are you unhappy? I don't believe that you are genuinely this upset about what Jeremy Clarkson said in the Times this morning. 
what's what is it? Why are you unhappy? And why why are you in this place where you are venting your spleen each and every day about a new thing? And I think, I mean, in the nice part, I don't mean it to be mean. I'm just thinking for their sake, I think that there's obviously something that's, that's making you unhappy and you're probably not going to find the answer to it in this forum. You need to sort of just take care of whatever it is that's making you miserable. And then you probably have a bit more of a laid back attitude. And that's not to say that there's nothing worth complaining about, but the problem is that if somebody does say something inflammatory or deeply offensive in a newspaper column or on television or whatever it may be, then that just gets lost in the sauce, gets completely lost in the mix between that and something that some columnist said in the Daily Mail today. And I think that it's such an overused word, but people's outrage, if it is outrage, should be saved for those occasions, because that's when it's actually needed. And you just, you're, you're sort of, you're not really doing anybody a favour by just getting upset about a new thing each and every day. But hey, but I do know, I agree, I take your point that I think that perhaps people are perhaps looking to be offended a bit more. And yeah, it's really weird seeing contemporary edits in sitcoms for language. I don't mean, for example, epithets. I don't mean things like slang, terminology and so on. I get that. I understand that. We've, we've spoken about that before with some of the shows that play on ITV3 and Gold and so on. But just what you call bad language, I find that a bit strange. And particularly when it's clearly got a purpose. Like in that example I gave of Del Boy, they are saying, in case you didn't see the episode a couple of years earlier, in which Slater is prepared to stitch up Rodney for something that he hasn't done and leave Grandad on his own on the estate just to get back at Del Boy, this is what this guy's capable of. In case you hadn't seen the episode a couple of years ago, let us just emphasise right now, for the following hour and a half, that Slater is a bastard. There's no better word for it. It does serve a purpose in that particular instance, and yet, it strikes me as if somebody's just looking at a rule book and saying bastard before 8 o'clock. Now, cut it out. But in terms of the words being used at the time, like I say, this took a wee bit of research, and I'll be dreadfully pissed off to use some bad language right off the bat. The point is that we actually, every single week that I upload the new podcast to iTunes, I always tick the explicit box. And I'll be absolutely honest, the reason why I do that is because I can't remember if I've dropped any F-bombs, because I have got a habit when I speak quickly and get excited about something of dropping a few Fs and what have you in the course of my normal speech. So rather than going through it with a fine tooth comb to hear if I have done that, I just tick the explicit box and say, there you are. Now, in this case, obviously, we're going to be using lots of explicit words. So, do you know what? For the sake of it, I'm going to stop now saying F word and C word. So I'm going to say the, the, the straightforward words from this point onwards on the podcast. So just to give you fair warning, because obviously it's it's relevant to the discussion. But... Yeah, um, I will be dreadfully upset if, if I set out my stall by saying, yeah, I had to do a fair bit of research on this this afternoon because nothing was springing to mind. And then yourself, Ocho, if you just reel off you know, two or three different sitcoms, well, obviously there was this, there was that, and there was this, and these nothing are the transmission dates. Nothing is my mind. Hey, no, that's a discussion, dude. 
if I start reeling stuff off that you've missed, that's educational. It's good for oh, no. all of us. No, I don't. Come I don't, on, I don't, let's, I don't. let's all think the best of each other. No, no, no I, don't, I don't mind that. What would upset me would be if you suddenly came out with free examples and I suddenly thought, it would be, it'd be like, for example, if I said, well, actually, uh, I understand that the F word has never been uttered on television and you just immediately replied Kenneth Tynan. And I was like, oh God, yes, there was that. <laughs> Sex Pistols. Oh God, I've forgotten about that. Yeah. Um, Stan Boardman. Oh Jesus Christ. And yeah, that point i would just i would just leave the room i wouldn't switch off the recording i would just leave the room <laughs> throw my headset down on the floor and leave you to it yeah so let's have a look now let's see what we've got written down here um are we right first of all to the best of your knowledge ocho leaving sitcoms aside for one moment is it absolutely true that kenneth tynan was the first person to say fuck on british television going by the furore and the news stories i'm going to say yes and yet, I'm sure I read a message board thread, and I kind of wish you'd warned me about this, about it a while ago, where somebody may have brought up a counterexample, but one that couldn't be properly verified. Well, I think that the person they were referring to was Peregrine Washburn, the ex-editor of the Sunday Telegraph, ah. and suggesting that he had used it once. I don't know, the whole Kenneth Tynan thing, it just seems... It's one of those weird situations, isn't it? That anybody who's credited as being the first person to have done something, when you look, generally tends to have been the sixth. Yes, yeah. You you tend to find... But the only person... Well, even then, some might have an argument about this. But generally, (laughs) Neil Armstrong is about the only person most of us can agree on. Um, Unless, I don't know. I would like to see somebody argue to me that... Peregrine Worsthorn was the first man on the moon. <laughs> and he took Ken- and Kenneth Tynan had to stay in the capsule, like Michael Collins. There'll be some bugger out there who believes that. There's got to be. I mean, bloody hell, the internet exists. There has to be somebody somewhere who would say that and vouch for it. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of naturally suspicious with things like this. Whenever you hear... And especially these days with these quick turnover documentaries and clips. It was interesting so on. on Wikipedia, I was looking up some animation history, and on Wikipedia they have to say, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was the first cell-animated feature film. You can't say first animated feature film like Disney is so fond of saying, because the stop motion and cutout and other processes have been used to make feature films before it, so now it has to be qualified you know my habit of telling occasional tall tales? The more outrageous, the better. Just to see if the bullshit detector goes off in the person that I'm speaking to. I once told an outrage and then felt bad about it because I realised that the person that was saying this to, they, they probably wouldn't really know that it was bullshitting, but I said to a fellow student once, who was a few years my junior, Tony Hancock, he was the first man to ever say the word lesbian on television, and he actually got a three-month suspended sentence for it. And... <laughs> Person, obviously, they just why? Why would they argue? Because if I've been saying that to somebody like yourself, similar age, they would have just call bullshit straight away. But after that, I thought, no, no, no. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna tell whoppers like that, then it has to be something so ridiculous that I'm gonna be called on it because that's that's the fun. But to the best of my knowledge, Tony Hancock never did that. But if we extend it even to broadcasting as a whole, to radio, going all the way back to BBC's inception, I just find it difficult to envisage that with all of those live microphones, 
going on all that time since what was it, nineteen twenty two and the nineteen thirty six and so on that not one oh, come person on. would have oh, no, even, hang on hang on a minute, somebody let's fly. No, but I don't necessarily mean the presenter. I mean I'm talking about, for example, say um Alan Wicker has stood amongst a whole crowd of people at Trafalgar Square during general election night. I, I find it then difficult to believe that not one swear word or F word would have come I out. I think if it was audible and heard by the audience it would have made the papers. There would have been some kind of stink kicked up. Would it have actually come out, though, if the backdrop to it was something like that? Say it was general election results or the first man in the moon or whatever. Surely that's what's going to be taking the column inches. I still think, oh yeah, but if we're talking pre, was it 1965? And it was clear and understandable and on British television, I think there would have been some kind of kerfuffle about it. I don't know enough about the Tynan example to be able to cite this properly, but my recollection of it is because obviously we've never heard it because there's no recording exists of it. It's all which is strange because you think the TW three principle recordings kept for legal reasons would apply to BBC three, which was the name of the show. Am I right in thinking that the discussion that they were having at the time was actually about the topic of censorship in relation to, I think, was it not principally the theatre that they were discussing? That, again, makes me suspicious because if that's how the conversation has been framed, if that's how it's been trailed, that makes me think that a lot of journalists and so on would have been paying careful attention to it on the off chance that something might be said rather than it came out in the middle of I'm just thinking, night. though, the climate of the times, if a, if a clearly understandable profanity went out on British television, regardless of the circumstances, we would know about it. It probably wouldn't cause quite the same fuss as Tynan's did, but I think we would know about it. I actually thought for a split second that you said it wouldn't have caused as much fuss as Tynan's dick. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know he'd gone that far. <laughs> I've been reading up. Actually, I guess this you can is say, worth you can mentioning. Say, you can say boning up. It's it's it's, it's, a, it's a sweary it's a sweary podcast. You can you can you don't need to use a new end. Well, have you ever seen? You know, the word boner used to be used to mean mistake. And there is in the comic community, there is an old comic going around with a story called Batman's Biggest Boner. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. And it's just people constantly using the word boner throughout this story. <laughs> if you find that at all amusing, you will oh, which, die. Which obviously, which obviously I don't. Is that at all? It's okay, fine. Very straight laced sort of thing. No, I've just been reading up about the Uncle Don situation, which I told you about. Children's show host on the radio uh, thinks the microphone's off. Let's fly. It was parodied in The Simpsons of the Gabo episode, and I was reading the Snopes urban legends pages about this because one of the problems is is there is a fake recording going around uh, which means a lot of people think that the story is verified the snobs urban legends pages examines this and saying there's no paper trail for the incident there's this little story saying oh this happened in a different town oh this happened a few weeks ago and the guy involved it's the name changes it's ended up attaching itself to one of the most famous early radio children's presenters. But in the, the the story first appears in a newspaper in 1930, but just kind of like, oh, here's a strange little incident that happened somewhere else. 
and underneath it is and the guy got fired and there was a oh, there was so many complaints but nobody can ever find a news story saying last night <laughs> on this station with these call letters with this presenter this happened yeah and it yeah. would yes of course just for the sake of balance i think that there's there's also a danger of being overly cynical about these kind of things as well and and automatically dismissing whenever anybody says oh the first instance was actually this it just comes down to how well do you trust the source and if it's a channel 5 clip show then i don't but <laughs> if it's say but in this case we can't find a paper trail for any earlier outrage and i think had had it gone out and everybody could have understood it, there would have been a kerfuffle. As far as British sitcoms concerned, the oh yeah, earliest... I we talk about sitcoms, don't we? <laughs> the earliest example that I can find of your actual F word being used loud and clear, not innuendo, not sound alike, no carry on style business going on, is from those filthy boys and girls at Channel 4 because we all know what they got up to from 1982 onwards and the earliest one that I know of would have been in the comic strip and the episode that I can cite because I've heard it myself is Bad News Tour which I'm just going to check the little episode guide I believe that Bad News Tour was episode 4 which went out on January the 24th 1983 now as far as I can remember, Five Go Mad in Dorset, which was the first comic strip that went out in Channel 4's first night, November the 2nd, 82, I don't believe that there was any F-word in that. I'm not familiar enough with Episodes 2 and 3, War and the Beat Generation. I have seen somebody on, I think it was Mausoleum Club, say that there was a couple of F-bombs in War, which went out in January the 3rd. But certainly Bad News Tour, there is a long sequence in which the band are having a conversation with the crew. And the director says to them, try not to swear so much. And Nigel Planer's character says, you can put in a fucking beep, can't you? That's the earliest example that I can find as far as straightforward sitcom is concerned. Now, I know that that's slightly muddying the waters because you can say, well, is it really because they're one-off episodes, it's not a continuous series and so on? Ocho, are there any other examples that you can think of? Because I have got one written down here as far as the studio audience is concerned, but it's much, much later in 1998, so is there anything else springing to mind as far as you're concerned? Nothing. Nothing is springing to mind. There are a couple of other examples of pushing the envelope that I can see starting to take place within the latter part of the 80s. For example, an episode of Only Fools and Horses funnily enough, which has got one line which always surprises me. I always sort of think that probably would have been perhaps open to negotiation and, and slipped through, thankfully, in which Del Boy and co. have been locked up in a supermarket all night, and Del Boy says, 14 hours! And every time I hear that, I, always, I think, he's not, is he? He's not going to say it. And, of course, he never does. And, then of course, not in sitcoms, but Dave Allen, 1990, stand-up routine on BBC One, had the F-word at the punchline of his last gag on a Saturday night, and that ended up in Hansard, believe it or not. Questions were asked in Parliament. I suspect the reason was because although it was well, well after the watershed at 10 o'clock at night, or actually closer to half past 10 when he said it, it was slap-bang before match of the day. P. 
people were saying, oh, my kids always stay up to watch the football on a Saturday night, and we had to hear this filth from Mr. Allen uh, beforehand. So as far as studio-based audience sitcoms are concerned, the first example that I can actually find is from 1998, and that's an episode of Father Ted, where they have the sheep competition. Oh, yes! Now, the thing is that even then, even though it's, it's on Channel 4, it's post-Watershed, but it's not, like, late late at night or anything like that. It's, almost, it's still said in such a way as if they're not quite uh, at the point where they could really just throw that out. Because what it is, basically, is you've got Ted interjects. I'm not going to spoil the end of the show if you haven't seen it, but Ted interjects into the award ceremony and drops a couple of of big bombshells and twice you hear a character and I think it's Graham Linehan himself say fucking hell in the background now it's sort of it's relatively quiet you can hear it but it's not the principal character saying it out loud so it's the kind of thing where you could sort of think did I hear that correctly or was it fuppin or was it feckin or whatever it was but that's as far as studio audience based traditional type of sitcom as much as Father Ted is traditional that's the earliest one that I can find. So that's what I'm going to offer up as the oldest one that I can find as far as sitcoms in general. January 83, I'm going to put forward. And then in a more sort of traditional audience-based setting, 1998. Now, I would love to hear from people if you've got earlier examples of that, particularly ones on ITV or BBC One. Lapscap, for example, mentioned a new statesman. I don't know what show, you may be more familiar with that show than I am. I've seen a few episodes of it. I can't recall fuck being never uttered by anybody in the show. I mean, it, it's still it's still an ITV show. Ten o'clock on Sunday night, maybe, but I don't know. I I I, I would love to hear if there is a clip if somebody can think of it and, and do let us know. But I don't know. I, I mean, obviously, the principal character's name is is a play on a swear word for goodness sake, and he's repeatedly referred to by his opponents as outright Mister Bastard. But yeah, that kind of thing you can you can get away with a sun that kind of thing you can get away with at ten o'clock on a Sunday night. But I don't know. I, I find I find it hard to envisage there being out and out fuck uttered in this era. By the way, if anybody's noticing that I never swear on the sitcom club, it's from having worked in radio, I've taken so long to train myself to have a microphone brain where I speak and behave differently when a, an open microphone is in front of me. <laughs> I'll be jiggered. <laughs> If I try and unlearn that habit, you stood me in good stead. I'm always very careful. <laughs> I'm always very careful what I say on microphones. It's like the story about why Claude Rains doesn't have a French accent playing a French character in Casablanca. It took him so long to learn how to speak like Claude Rains. <laughs> he wasn't about to relearn how to speak like somebody else. So those are the earliest examples that I can think of, Lapscat. I'm sure there are others. I, f- I do find it difficult to believe that between 1983 and 1998 there wouldn't have been any other examples. I mean, certainly in episodes of the comic strip from then on, you'd have the F word. And I expect that you would have had it in comedy dramas and what have you. Yeah, this, but- this is part of the problem I said earlier about follow a paper trail. It becomes harder once the taboo's been broken in other things. And Monty Python, of course, I think John Cleese is the first person to have said a great number of swear words. But once that taboo's been broken, it being broken in a sitcom 
is less likely to be. So after all I've said about follow the paper trail for the first use, it's not much use trying to follow the paper trail for the first use in a specific medium. We can at least break this down into individual channels because we've only spoken so far about Channel 4. And, you know, they were setting their stall out in the early days. They were going to be different and they were going to have alternative comedy as it sounds like such a uh, antiquated term now, but that's what they were proposing. So it's not unexpected to hear in a 1983 episode of the comic strip. But we haven't yet got to the point where this is appearing in BBC One shows or, or ITV and so on. We'll come to that in a moment. You just mentioned about Python. I don't know if you recall, it's about, I think about 2000, 2001, something like that. It was a Channel 4 drama about Oswald Mosley, and it had ended ah, up in the papers. Yes, yes. Remember this? I, yes, yeah. I do remember that, yes. There's a line in it, a prison guard has to shout cunt very loudly. Which, of course, is buried in the mix of the song about Oswald Mosley that appeared on Not the Nine O'Clock News. <laughs> yes. Very well buried. I've never heard it, but apparently it's there. Just... <laughs> Well, the thing is, I remember all this furore. Must have been a slow news day or slow news week or whatever, but everybody was banging on about it. And this is like a drama and a controversial subject matter to begin with. And it's on late at night on Channel 4, so I don't know what the hell the big hoo-ha was all about. But funnily enough, around about that same See, time... that's the word. They could have made it nice and used the word hoo-ha instead. Yeah, 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 blimmin' idiot. I think it might even have been the same night because... There's got to be a reason why I remember this so well. On Paramount Comedy, as it was, now Comedy Central, they were screening Monty Python at the Hollywood Bowl. And that includes a restaging of the Albatross sketch in the cinema. And in this particular version, John Cleese says, of course you don't get fucking wafers with it, you cunt. Now, that, that got, I mean, that got shown on Paramount with just the usual, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. I don't remember a Everything going into meltdown. I don't remember Parliament having the license revoked because John Cleese uttered this word, and on all the people who were saying at the time, "Well, you've got to, you've got to expect some strong language in a drama of this type and what have you," and this just seems completely fly in the face of all that. It was just nobody would have batted an eyelid if it had been a scene of Oswald Mosley asking for a wafer. Exactly, you expect it when you hear the word wafer. You know what's coming right behind it. But it's interesting to see the, the, the genesis of it, because obviously... The hey, first... hey, you know what? I'm going to have to send you that episode of Dick Turpin. <laughs> <laughs> and we will check. Pin back your ears, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> Christopher Benjamin allows something a little stronger than phi. <laughs> it, it, is so, it is interesting to... Actually, uh, another thing worth mentioning, because I trained myself with my mic brain and my mic mouth. And also I do a lot of babysitting now. I have little nieces and nephews crawling around me. I, I do now have the tendency to use Elizabethan swear words. Because it doesn't matter. No, no little baby is going to get in trouble if they say odds bodykins. <laughs> Wurzel Gummidge is foul-mouthed. Wurzel Gummidge said cow shit. He said cow shed. He said, smelling like a rotten old cow shed. Maybe he did. <laughs> but apparently he does keep using the word swive, which is filth. It's Elizabethan filth. I'm still not entirely sure about this. I am sure that there was... Uh, I don't even really want to say it, to be honest, because it is. It's repulsive, and I apologise, but I'm going to have to, because 
I need to put this into context just to defend myself. I'm sure there's an episode of Warzel Gummidge in which Aunt Sally accuses Warzel Gummidge of having eaten cow dung. And he says to her, I never ate no cow shit. I'm absolutely sure of this. Because there is one where she accuses him of smelling like a rotten old cow shed. And he says rotten old cow shed, but with his Wurzel accent, it sounds a bit different. But no, reportedly, John Pertwee liked to sneak in Elizabethan swear words into <laughs> Wurzel's speech. Well, like I say, we've only so far touched on examples from the minority channels. Channel 4 and obviously there'll be examples, shows on BBC Two. I'm thinking probably more, maybe more sketch shows initially than, than sitcoms, but one example I can think of in a mainstream show which started on BBC Two and then finished on BBC One and is now very, very much a mainstream show is The Office. I think it's the last episode of the second series in which Brent has pretty much put all his eggs in one basket. He's put all his stock in becoming an inspirational speaker, motivational speaker. And he's had his first gig and it hasn't gone well. And he, of course, being in his own little world, he hasn't realised the way that he's come across to other people. So everybody else can see it coming except him. And then the people from the agency have to come along and tell him the bad news that they don't intend to use him again. Now, he's been going around the office all day giving his business cards out and basically saying, I'm not long for, you know, this office because I'm, you know, I'm going places. I'm going to be doing my, my own shtick from now on. And at the point at which the guy tells him, we don't intend to use you again in the future, Brent pauses for a moment and then just exclaims, fucking hell. And it really, when he says it, it's the only suitable thing that he could say because he's right at the end of his teller and he's just realised that he's painted himself into a corner and this is where he is now. So there's, there's nothing else that he could really say. If he said anything that was weaker than that, then it would just sound as if it had been toned in for, for its own sake. Now, that originally went out in BBC Two, been repeated on BBC One since, still post-Watershed, as I think probably every example that we're going to give here is. But I think that that would be an example of something that would be justified by the text itself. I mean, maybe there's something else that he could have said, but in the scene itself, I think you'll see that it, it, it's suitable. It's, it's absolutely what he would exclaim in those circumstances. Just to wrap up on this topic, supposedly inadvertent swearing, there is a character, or actually there's a whole family of characters in Married with Children who occasionally appear. I think Tim Conway is the head of the household, called the Wanker family. And, of course, that doesn't have the same meaning as I understand it, in the US, that it does in the UK. So, not really a big issue for American audiences on Fox, but when then screen on ITV, suddenly, oh, blimey, is that what they said? I think I'm actually right in saying that isn't, there's no even an instance of that happening in Mork and Mindy? I'm sure yes, I stumbled across that on yes. the forum once. Was it the landlord or something? And of course, you do have a character in an episode of Lost in Space called Sergeant Bollocks. <laughs> There was, I think it had a Vogue in the 50s, (laughs) B-O-L-I-X. Same word root, apparently, as our grand old Anglo-Saxon. The last Harold Lloyd film, which was released in 1947, re-released in 1950 under the title Mad Wednesday. And it has a poster about the craziest, strangest, most bollocked up day ever. And there is also 
an episode of the Flintstones where Wilma says, why does Fred always manage to bollocks things up? <laughs> I need to keep an eye out for that one on Boomerang. Last couple of items here. I cannot find an example of the C word being used in, I suppose, what you call a mainstream sitcom, certainly not on the most popular channel. The only example I can think of would be, as far as UK sitcoms are concerned, The Thick of It, last episode of, I think what was originally series two, but now tends to be, because the first two series of The Thick of It were three episodes apiece, but now tends to be all just sort of collated together in in one single first series. There is the storyline in which Hugh Abbott sends an email which simply says, Christ, what a cunt, and then thinks that he's sending it to his colleague Glenn, and actually he sends it to, to I think it's an eight-year-old child whose, whose name is very similar on the, on the email database. And, of course, in, in that instance, the interesting thing about that is that the, the thick of it is a show, of course, which absolutely thrives on its use of language, usually emanating from Malcolm Tucker, but in this particular instance, it's not really been used and I don't actually think the C word is used very often in the thick of it it doesn't tend to be maybe I'm not sure maybe maybe it is latterly but it doesn't tend to be thrown about quite as often as fuckety by and so on in this particular instance the whole story is about that word and how loaded it is and the fact that it's been said inappropriately as if there's an appropriate way to say it and so on a couple of other things spring to mind American shows for example the Larry Sanders show Went on BBC Two late at night, usually around about quarter past eleven and so on. There are a couple of examples, and the first time it's used by Hank Kingsley, it causes silence in the room. It gets a reaction, it's not just thrown out there. And of course, more recently, there's the Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where Larry attempts to put an advert in the local paper which describes their beloved aunt, and there's a spelling error. Nowadays, I mean, something, for example, like Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. Now, this is something I did want to speak about because Lapscat had mentioned Game On as a possible example. Now, I'd never seen Game On until today. Y- you know I'm like Ocho when sometimes I've, I've seen something and immediately formed an impression about it and given up on it there. And I told you previously about getting the wrong end of the stick as far as about increasing suckles from one glimpse at Howard and Hilda. The first time I ever saw Game On, I just thought, oh, this is like a sort of a uh, less witty, more crude version of Men Behaving Badly. That was my first impression of it all the way back in the mid-90s, and that was very much my impression of watching it this afternoon for the first time. <laughs> I watched the first episode of it, and it was honestly... I felt... And I don't think that I'm, I'm in any way a prude. <laughs> I don't think anybody listened to me during this podcast or any of the previous ones would think that, but I, I want to take a bottle of disinfectant to the TV after I finished watching that, because as far as I was concerned, there was no wit... There was certainly no innuendo, there was no cleverness. It was, I mean, the first word that got a laugh was shagging for its own sake. And that's the way that it just descended from, from then on over the next half an hour. It was, as far as I was concerned, it was horrible. Now, you know, that's the way that the show is, and it was on for long enough, and so it must have been popular with some people. And yet, a show like Gimme, 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 I really enjoy. Now, I find it difficult to explain the difference, but... In Gimme, 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 you do get all the same words being used. Uh, there's plenty of innuendo in Gimme, Gimme, Gimme as well, but there's plenty of just outright strong language, and yet there's just something about the whole atmosphere of it which just makes it amusing, it makes it acceptable. It, it doesn't sound as if it's a substitute for, for wit. I don't know, how, how did you, did you ever see all of those shows? No, not my thing. I am a prude. 
and a killjoy and a buzzkill. And I am politically correct. And I do hate fun. Nowadays, Mrs. Brown's boys. I'm not really seeing a great deal of it, but as I understand it, the F word is used repeatedly, mixed in with regular effects as well, which was made popular by Father Ted. And it's just because it's, it's almost like they've just set out from the beginning, this is how this show is going to be. And so it's not going to have the same impact as if Felicity Kendall had suddenly delivered that line or that word to Richard Briars in the middle of an episode of The Good Life. That, especially if it had been the one they taped in front of the Queen, that would have probably caused the BBC's charter to be revoked. But, you know, it's just, it's just nowadays, it's, it's just, here's a show, this is what it's going to be like, and take it or leave it. And yet, I still find it difficult to imagine Mrs. Brown throwing out a C-word with any degree of frequency. But, hey, we'll see. Maybe maybe we'll revisit this episode in ten years' time and we'll we'll remark about how quaint it all is. I have some mail baggage. Bogenstrovia sent me a message. What exactly did George Roper do with all of his copies of Gardening Times to make room for other publications? I imagine he advertised them in the Exchange in Mart. Was he not in the habit of giving them to the local church jumble sale? I don't know why I put the emphasis on the last word there, but did he not Did he not send them off to the, the vicarage? And then, of course, there would be occasionally the well, odd you've seen more George and Mildred than I have. Something I'm going to eventually rectify, because I have watched another episode of Man About the House for a future edition, and once it's hit its stride, I'm really warming to it. And I, was, yeah, I used to watch George and Mildred when it turned up on Paramount Comedy Channel. So I'm thinking, yeah, you know, maybe it's time to make that investment and get all the Georges and Mildreds. Well, there is an episode in which Mildred sends a box of what she thinks are gardening magazines to the jumble sale. But of course, this is merely George's disguise for them, and he has to go to far-flung lengths to retrieve them. Um, Up to and including murder. (laughs) We've been quite harsh on George. Uh, well, yeah, where did we get this one? idea that George is just the most foul, disgusting being <laughs> ever to be spewed out of the darkest bowel of Hades? Well, no, that clearly is Jack and on the buses, yeah. as we've already established. Although I, I did actually begin to think when I was watching Nightingale's Ale a week that uh, David Feverell's character certainly gives Jack a run for his money in that regard. Yeah, most of the cast of Queenie's Castle. We'll come to that next time. That that was a grim experience. When are you going to watch The House of Jack Built? All of them. I'm not. <laughs> Queenie's Castle, written by Keith Waterhouse and Willis Hall. House that Jack Built, starring Adam Faith. I'm deciding that maybe beyond Budgie, I shouldn't have anything to do with these people. That's a good name for a spin-off. Ian Cuthbertson is... Well, of course, there was a spin-off from Budgie. And that's pretty good show and should have got a second series but the ITV network with its rabid, poisonous, anti-Scottish bias didn't give it a fair crack of the whip. And also there was that industrial action that went on for three months as well which didn't help. That didn't help but so actually Box, I'm going to say George didn't actually have all those copies of the Gardening Times he never had a big stack of copies that he had to clear out to make room for filth I think think the filth came first and he was just looking at his stack of poison. <laughs> he was looking at his stack. So that's what he was into, was it? And said, I'm going to have to buy one copy 
of the Gardening Times to put on top of this. Ah, poor old George. We will be discussing Men About the House next, and I I think we're going to talk more about the sex lives of George and Mildred and of Stanley and Helen. Yeah, well, Stanley, of course, has always got that plunger in his hand. (laughs) But he has. He's always got that. Yeah, he still had it when they had the one spin-off. It's like it's permanently attached. Yeah. Anyway, you had another item there. Yes, from my good friend Lucy. Mind your language. Why? It's a very interesting question. Well, apparently, Vince Powell, was it his au pair? Yes. yes. Was having some difficulty with the English language. And he thought, you know what? There's a sitcom in this. What a wonderful way of bringing people together. And then at the last minute, he just went, ah, I'll just throw some stereotypes. Job done. I'm probably being terribly unfair. We've got to come back to this whole problem of everybody being chippy. There are places I have not mentioned this podcast. Places where people like to talk about the shows we like to talk about. And I haven't mentioned it because I know they will hate us. Because to them, we were we will be unacceptably politically correct because our stance on mind your language and love thy neighbour is not ah, shouldn't be offended it's jolly a joke by the same token our stance is not this is racist poison words which are actually used to describe love thy neighbour I think it was in the Radio Times it, I mean I see you see it all the time I mean you see for example people upload what's really weird I mean is also moderately sinister although there's absolutely no reflection on on anybody associated with the program itself is that sometimes you get things like love thy neighbor and curry and chips being uploaded to people on youtube and actually labeled as hilarious racist comedy as if that's the sort of that's the the reaction to the pc brigade yes it's racist and it's damn funny as well it seems to have moved on in some people's minds from no of course it wasn't racist to yes it is and what the hell's wrong with that Uh, really weird mindset but no i mean i think that when we discussed for example we discussed love thy neighbor previously i think that we were quite even-handed about it and i think the same goes for mind your language i think i've probably put forward this view before that i think there's a fundamental flaw in mind your language although i understand why it's there because it's sort of playing to its audience to an extent but barry evans is not quite a straight man, but he's not really the butt of the jokes. And there are instances, many, many instances in there where clearly he should be. For example, he says to one of his students, I'm just going to see a man about a dog. And then when he comes into the classroom, the chap says to him, did you sort out your dog okay? Did you get your dog? Or something to that effect. And Barry Evans is astonished and thinks, well, no, clearly I meant I was going to the gent's convenience obviously now why on earth would the student know that yeah that's i mean it's well, one I was, thing I was to expect... waiting for some joke about stray dogs and chinese takeaways no no it wasn't anything quite... it's not spats no no it wasn't anything quite as crass as that but it, it's something that comes up repeatedly is that the students are expected not just to have a, a good understanding of what you might call BBC World Service English, but also on occasion they're expected to understand slang terminology as well, which of course, Barry Evans should be the butt of the joke. I keep on thinking not sure, I don't think I've actually said this in the show before, so I'll say it now. I did wonder previously how good Mind Your Language would have been if it had been written by Ronnie Barker. 
not necessarily even starring Ronnie Barker, but if it had been written by him, and it was as it was supposedly meant to be, and as Michael Grade understood it to be, a sitcom about the English language. I think there's an argument, I don't think I'm overstating this, I think there's an argument to say it could have been an absolute belter, a real, true classic of the genre. And it wouldn't have been anything like Mind Your Language as it, as it then turned out, but I mean, a show just about the foibles of the language and double meanings and and, and the difference between words from different nationalities. I mean, I used to work in a call centre down in Portsmouth, which was the base for a huge constituency. It was It was to cover basically the majority of Europe. And so we had employees there from all over continental Europe. And every day we would have little discussions and we'd share jokes between us and so on about the different ways that people's speech was interpreted and the different meanings of of certain words and so on. One girl that I worked with, she had a habit of switching from English into German and sometimes in the middle of a sentence, which always threw me. And just little little things like that. And there was never there was never the slightest hint of any kind of superiority from one group over another it was all just all finding these little differences and little quirks and so on it was it was lovely it was a lovely atmosphere and surely it's possible to translate that into some sort of yeah, something, ha- something similar happened to me I was talking to my sister-in-law who english is her first language and she's born in the u.s but her husband's from mexico so she speaks fluent spanish and i was quoting a joke from a Mexican comedian called Tintan, one of his jokes being about how much English had penetrated Mexican Spanish. And so one of his gags is, ¿Cómo se dice a window in inglés? The joke being is that he's already using the English word. He doesn't realise it. Literally translated, how do you say window in English? It would be like saying, Qu- quickly, quickly, what's the French word for baguette? So I was quoting this joke to her. She didn't realise I was quoting a joke and tried to answer the question without noticing that I'd switched to Spanish and that I was using an English word in the middle of this Spanish sentence. It was, what a tangle. (laughs) Another time I got a friend to teach me a Welsh sentence because I was co-presenting a show with a Welsh co-presenter. And I was hoping that she would be taken aback or compliment me on how good my Welsh accent. She hadn't noticed I'd switched languages. <laughs> Still, eh? Picks and limb. Do, do we want to talk about that? No. <laughs> okay. Well, you, thank you. Just made me look like George Roper in front of everybody. <laughs> okay. Well, now we can talk about it if you want. Now we can talk about it if you We've want. We've got an old copy of the TV Times, and somebody <laughs> next to certain actresses' names, Diane Langton, very popular. He's put a cross, and next to other actresses' names in these cast lists, he's put a tick. But next to some of them, he's put a tick that he's then crossed. And we're really slightly unsettled as to what this could possibly mean. But for Mind Your Language, Francois Pascal and Anna Bergman get a cross tick. But Pixen Lim gets a tick. Well, if you are the former owner of that copy of the TV Please Times... Please get in touch, Mr. Roper. It's dated... <laughs> Dated the 14th to the 20th of October 1978. If you recognise that copy and you'd like to explain the details of your code, we'd be most grateful. <laughs> so we've covered a lot in this mailbag. We've, we've delved deep. We've covered 
Mrs. Slocum in Cougartown. We've uncovered what words you can and cannot say in Keep It in the Family. We've discussed George Roper and his perversions. And we've discussed Mind Your Language. We need to discuss it properly sometime, but we're just going to get so many, so much hate mail when we do. Because here's the problem. Mind Your Language and Love Thy Neighbour are not racist. But they're also not not racist. I don't believe that I love those shows. I certainly don't believe it of Vince Powell himself. I don't believe that either of those shows are intentionally racist. They are certainly capable of being racially insensitive. But, you know, the sins of omission as well as sins of commission. Yes. And, unfortunately, that viewpoint, although I'm expressing it because it's, it's my own opinion and I think it's the correct way to look at it, it doesn't tend to get a lot of headlines doesn't particularly work very well when it comes to outraged editorials in the Mail or the Guardian, depending on which point of view you have. And unfortunately, that doesn't really scream fight, which, as we began the, the podcast by saying, seems to be sort of the end thing these days. And maybe we just need to get back to basics. Well, thank you very much indeed, Ocho, for your time today. It's been nice jumping in feet first into the mailbag. And thank you very much to all those who got in touch with us. We'll be doing another one of these soon. Probably the next time that we promise that we're going to talk about a particular show and then we don't. Uh, it'll probably be then. But next time, Ocho, compliments of the season to you. Because next time is going to be our Thanksgiving special. So what we're going to do for Thanksgiving, in a mood of transatlantic cousinhood, we're going to look at two British sitcoms that got translated to American sitcoms, and we're going to look at one American sitcom that got translated into a British sitcom. Compare, contrast, it's going to be fun, comment, yes. And we're not just going to get all jingoistic and say, British is best and American is not. We are when it comes to who's the boss. No, we're not. But let's let's, we'll we'll burn that bridge when we come to it. (laughs) We should burn that show when we come to it. So all being well... Well, we're already two-thirds of the way there. We have two more shows to watch, so we might be able to keep this promise. Well, we've got to, because Thanksgiving will not move for us. So, next time, the Thanksgiving Club will be on the air. And in the meantime, of course, you can find us at sitcomclub.com. You can find a link there, either via iTunes or just straightforward old XML feed. You can find links to all the previous episodes going all the way back to April this year. And, of course, you can get in touch with us at feedback at sitcomclub.com and also at the Sitcom Club on Twitter. Let us know anything you'd like us to talk about in a future episode or any feedback you've got about this episode or anything else that we've spoken about. So, from Ocho. Goodbye. And myself, we'll see you again next time on the Filthy Fellmouthed Sitcom Club. <laughs>